Welcome to IBBA Insights, providing expert advice on buying or selling small businesses. IBBA Insights is presented by the International Business Brokers Association, the world's largest nonprofit organization for those helping others sell or buy businesses. Now, here's your host, Press Diglio. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of IBBA Insights. And today we're going to talk about a topic that happens on every single business transaction there is, and that's the value of a company and how to maximize the value of a company and how do you do that when looking at what a company earns, what do they make? And then when looking at that, we look at the bottom line of a company and the profitability of a company. And in most cases, if we had to sell a company for what the tax return says is the uh, taxable net income, we wouldn't sell too many businesses because business owners have a lot of other things built into the business that attribute to the value or the adjusted net income. So on today's show, we're not going to talk about things such as what can you add back and why this is allowed. It's not going to be dull and boring. I promise you. We're going to talk about real world things that happen in every single transaction that if you're a business owner listening, you're going to want to know about because we're going to show you how you can maximize the value of your company. If you're a business broker, we're going to talk to you about the importance of educating your client and letting them know ahead of time what things they should look out for and why. So if you're a business owner and you have 30 minutes, you're a business broker, you have 30 minutes or so, I highly encourage you to keep listening because this conversation we're going to have today could be the difference between you selling your business for a premium or taking a haircut on the price. Now, do I have your attention now? I probably do. So how do we do this? I have two good friends of mine, but also very well-respected industry professionals that I recently had the privilege of um, sitting on a panel with at the M&A Source Conference in October. And we talked about high-level addbacks or adjustments to businesses and financial statements. And today we're going to talk about it, these type of adjustments or addbacks, how it pertains to a small business transaction. And so... Who do you call when you want to talk about things and get the very best information out? You call your friends, but you call experts, people that you know are going to give great information. One of my guests who's a a friend of the show and been on numerous times, is the owner of Diamond Financial Services and also the current IBBA board member, uh, Steve Mariani. And along with Steve, I have Jeff Snell, who's a past chair of the IBBA. He's the owner and founder of InLine. Uh, advisors. And these guys are going to tell you how it is. They're not going to hold anything back. Jeff and Steve, welcome back to IBBA Insights. Thank you, Chris. It's always a pleasure. And it's always a great opportunity when we can share information that can help these brokers get the most out of their listings and the most value for their sellers. So we we appreciate you having us on and uh, sharing this information for sure. Good morning or afternoon, depending upon when the audience is listening to the podcast. I'm excited to be a part of it. I wanted Jeff and Steve on this show to look at it from two different perspectives. Jeff, you from the business broker's perspective of dealing with buyers and sellers, and Steve, from your perspective, from the lending side, how it affects the sale of a business, the how it affects ultimately the price of the business potentially, or even if a business is able to get done. We're going to start right at the very beginning, Jeff, and we're going to talk about someone comes to you and they say, I've got really clean books and records. So what does that mean? What's the importance, especially in the sale of a business, 
to having good books or clean books and records? I think you've t- touched on the foundational concept of valuation, which is starting with the numbers. If we don't have defensible and clean financial records, it's a bad start right out of the gate. We need to have numbers that a buyer, the underwriter, and the SBA can look at and understand without having a bunch of convoluted math at the bottom or in a separate column that confuses the financial picture. And Steve, I know every transaction that comes across your desk has zero addbacks, absolutely 100% what's on the bottom line. That's the net profit of the company. But on the rare occasions where that doesn't happen, tell us what it means to the lender to be able to have a set of books and records that they can trust in and that you would consider to be clean, good books and records. Sure. First, I've only been doing it 28 years, so clean books and records throws us for a loop. Uh, But (laughs) ultimately, lenders' initial take on any transaction is what matters. They can form an opinion in the first five or 10 minutes, and then all they're doing after that is supporting their decision. And I'm talking about from a credit underwriting perspective. So there's off-the-record 80-20 rule. If we're looking at more than 20% of the cash flow coming from we'll say wilder ad backs or more creative ad backs, not your normal typical ones, which we'll get into in a second. If they have to dig where there's 50, 60, 70% of just ad backs buried in the expense line items, that's not going to give any credit underwriter any kind of comfort. Let's talk about the definition of clean books and records for a second, because that might not be clear to all of our listeners. Clean books and records doesn't just mean that the income and expense categories are accurate. It means that your profit and loss will tie back to your tax return and your profit and loss will tie back to bank statements, that there's no conflicting information that can't be easily explained. So when we say clean books and records, we don't just mean that your income and expense categories are are correct. We mean that the entire set of financials are clean. Exactly. Great for pointing that out. Yeah, that's a great point. So we talk about the books and records and not to bore anybody. So we're sitting here and, and basic valuation will tell you that you can add back interest. You could add back depreciation. You could add back one working owner that's in the business and, and the and amortization. So these are the things that you look at that are 99% of the time automatically going to be added back unless there's a reason not to. What we want to really delve into to you Mr. and Mrs. Business Owner or, or Broker or Intermediary out there is what beyond that is allowable and acceptable. So Jeff, beyond the the basis of the pure definition of, of an ad back, from a valuation standpoint, when you're looking at a business to take the market, what is the purpose of providing an ad back or an adjustment to the financial statements? And what does that mean? The purpose of recasting or normalization of the financial statements is to provide the most accurate picture of what a buyer can expect to experience financially post-transaction. So everything is being viewed through that lens of normalization, whereby we take the obvious addbacks that that you've uh, mentioned most of, but then we look deeper in an attempt to maximize the value for the seller, who is our client, by taking the data and looking at it very strictly through the future lens. So an example would be a client that has just spent $50,000 on a website. That $50,000 is certainly captured within the review period, but that website has more than a one-year lifespan. 
And if we say, I believe it's reasonable to say a website has a five-year life, we should be able to add back 40,000 of that 50,000 because we've captured 100% of the expense, but only over 20% of its useful life. So th that, that's an example of an add back that might not be so logical or so obvious. Uh, another one that, that I've run into more frequently now than I think uh, in, in many years is negative add backs for rent. When the economy is struggling and businesses are not generating as much profit as they have historically, I find that when a business owner owns their land and building, they oftentimes will cut their rent to improve cash flow. And we need to adjust for that because the buyer is not going to likely experience that reduced rent because they're either going to be buying it and paying a mortgage or they're going to be paying a fair market rent after they purchase the business. So if I see a rent line item that doesn't match up with prior periods, then I'm asking the, the seller, what is a fair market rate rent? And we oftentimes have to increase the rent expense, which obviously has an adverse effect on seller discretionary earnings. Steve, from a lender's point of view, let's talk about these standard ad backs or adjustments. From a business broker's point of view, that a lot of the business brokers out there, unfortunately, a business owner tells them, I spend this on the company and it's not a business expense, or I do this, or I do that. And the business broker just accepts it and adds everything back, not an IBBA CBI, but just a business broker, the regular business broker out there, the shameless plug, right? The regular business broker out there accepts every single adjustment, but then they can't defend it or they can't even justify it. They can't even find it when push comes to shove. But at times there are your position as the lender or working with the lender is different than the intermediary or the broker's position. So talk about some of the things the bank looks at and just says, no, not going to happen, where a broker all the time may just allow that adjustment. Yeah. And those are a couple of great points there, things that Jeff brought up. Uh, one of the things I heard you mention as an automatic ad back, and we can go through the automatic ad backs. Much of what you said before, the officer's salary or the owner's salary, interest and, and expenses that are directly tied to either the seller or one-time expenses. The other thing that you mentioned that might or might not be of concern to business brokers is the depreciation. And I'll tell you exactly why. If, if a lender is going to see $200,000 on a depreciation line for the last three years, they're going to take for granted that's a capital expenditure that we're going to have moving forward. If we see a thirty, forty thousand dollar depreciation number, and it's a one year, or, or last year was twenty thousand, we're not going to be too concerned. But if we see two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the last three years, that is going to raise the flag, and we're going. Our next question is going to be: We're going to wind up spending this, and we're going to remove that number from the cash flow if they've been doing it for a number of years. Question for you: I wanted to inquire as to accelerated depreciation, Section 179 depreciation. How does that classification and acceleration of depreciation affect the underwriting and lending? Great question. And we see it a lot in those older, more established businesses where the seller's been there for 30 years and just upgrades equipment because he thinks there's an efficiency. So we're going to then drill down on that piece of equipment or that expense to determine what is his usable life? And did he absolutely have to have it to support the business? Or it's either going to be, we just bought that for a future growth, or we purchased that piece of equipment to, to make efficiency modifications, or I did it just to get the money off my income because I never needed it anyway. And this was just a fun upgrade I wanted to see happen. But that's the area we're going to explore. 
sellers have used the 179 over the last whatever, five, six, eight years since it's been out, a lot of times just because they didn't need the cash. So I've seen so much equipment and so many things upgraded for lack of a better reason. They, they wanted the money off of the net income. So that's definitely one of the areas that we want to look more at because depreciation in 179 is an issue these last few years. Specifically, when reviewing financial statements as either a broker or a, a business owner reviewing your own statements, you want to look for vehicles because very often we're seeing 6,000 pound vehicles being purchased at the end of the year for really tax planning purposes where the vehicle is not used or needed in the business at all. Absolutely. And we do see that for sure. Uh, the other thing that you brought up, which was an excellent point that everyone needs to be aware of, the, both business owners and brokers, is that rent adjustment. It cost us a deal last year. We got bit. They came in paying $95,000 a year rent, uh, and the seller did own the real estate and was leasing it back to them for $95,000 for the next three years. After that, they had to move, and fair market value rent was two twenty-five dollars when we looked at comps. So... Yeah, you do. And that is going to be also something that's going to be brought up by the business valuation. So it doesn't matter even if it gets through underwriting. When it comes to the valuation, they are going to explore that piece of real estate and determine what the fair market value rent is. They're going to apply that rent and it'll most likely be a negative cash adjustment, like Jeff mentioned, to the SDE or the discretionary earnings. So no matter what, when you're calculating your cash flow on a multiple basis or for a listing, take into account that fair market value rent. Yeah, gentlemen, I live in a state that is a co-brokering state, which means someone could have the listing and then another business broker has the buyer and they split the fee. So for years, I would battle with business brokers when I was representing the buyer. I would look at the one-page summary they'd put out on the company and I would look at some of these adjustments. And because they can't list everything, they'd do this category called other. And it was like $100,000 other, $150,000 other. And I'd get on the phone with the broker and I would ask the questions, what is this other? And they'd start rambling off all these, there's cash in the business. And I'd go, oh, earmuffs, right? They say there's this or that. And then we'd dig a little deeper and we'd find out in discovery that there are three owners in the business all working full time and they're not taking fair market salaries, and but they didn't make any adjustments to the bottom line. And I'd ask the broker, why didn't you adjust to normalize salaries? That would decrease the bottom line. I couldn't sell the business for as much. I said, who are you trying to fool? Jeff, the biggest misconception out there is when we make adjustments or we do recasting the financial statements, it's going to increase the bottom line, but that's not true. You talked about the rent and we talked about different things, but the importance to not just Jeff, to not just talk about the positive addbacks, but the negative adjustments, why that's important and what it does to a buyer's mind frame when you tell them about it, rather than them discovering it later on in due diligence. I think that's the principal component of building trust and rapport with the buyer. I think that as a broker, it's your responsibility, perhaps not in all jurisdictions, a fiduciary responsibility, but I think it's your ethical and moral obligation to share the good, the bad, and the ugly, and accept that there is no perfect business. And if there was a perfect business, it probably wouldn't be sellable because a buyer wants to have areas they feel they can improve it. So talking about positive addbacks, negative addbacks, and adverse operational issues, or, or whatever the case may be with a particular client, is important, in my opinion, to build not only with the buyer, but with uh, the lender as well. I think I have a, a great relationship with Steve that's spanning close to 20 years 
And I think when I send him a financial statement, he has a high degree of confidence in it because he's seen so many recasts that I've done over the last couple of decades. So that's what we're trying to build uh, in all our relationships on the buy side and the lending side. And Steve, you mentioned it uh, a minute ago, valuation, when the bank takes on an opportunity to do a loan, they're going to send it off for a third-party valuation. The odds of a business broker or a business owner fooling someone or getting it past the system or making things that just aren't going to be uncovered, probably not going to happen. From the, the lending perspective, Steve, when you guys start looking at the business that's for sale and you're getting ready to do your write-up on to determine, hey, is this something we believe we can go forward with? When you see a, a ton of adjustments, whether they're questionable or not, and it just starts getting deeper and deeper into it, at, at what point does the lender lose some confidence in the business transaction potentially going forward or not? That's exactly what happens. They're forming an opinion of the seller and building either a trust or a lack of trust thereof. There is, and I hate to use the words, an acceptable gray area where we can't make the determination whether the, you're running the wife's Cadillac through the business. We can't make that determination whether it was used for the business or not. We can accept that as an ad back. Going back to your negative ad backs, there are a few that, that come to play. We talked about the fair market value rent, but another thing that's going to matter and be considered is when looking at that corporate seller's tax return, it has a list of the officers in there and their percentage of time devoted to the business. So they may say the wife isn't involved at all, and yet that tax return says 100% of her time is dedicated to this business. Now, we may be able to get through that, and nine times out of 10 we can, but that is going to raise questions. Because if there are, as you mentioned, three partners and one's buying out the company, if we don't catch it or, and or the underwriter doesn't catch it, the business valuation people will catch it and say, hey, there are three owners. Two of them are going to have to be replaced. What's the cost of replacing those two departing people? So that's another negative ad back we're constantly on the watch for. Jeff, most of the time, if done properly, in my opinion, the recasting of the financial statements are done prior to taking a business to market because how could you value it if you don't really understand the, the financials? Now, this we could do a whole show on whether that's done in the marketplace or not, but let's just go on the basis of, hey, we're looking at these adjustments and trying to understand what the company, their true earning power is over the period of time, whether it be the last year, the trailing 12 months, or throughout their history. How important is it for you, the business intermediary, the business broker, to educate the client on what's going on in the process and what they're looking for and what you're attempting to do by recasting their financial statements and how it all ties into working with a lender and possibly a buyer, obviously, one day? It's in incredibly important to address those issues early on. I usually am talking uh, numbers in the very first phone call or, or very first meeting. They do need to understand, as we've described earlier in the show, the purpose of the process. And that purpose quite literally is not to maximize the number of ad backs. We want it to be defensible. We want it to be accurate. So accuracy equals defensibility 
equals successful process. Now, one of the things we haven't talked about, or at least not specifically talked about is addbacks be, being positive or negative are being applied to historical financial activity. Let's talk a moment about future financial activity. I was working with a buyer that was wanting to acquire a company that had been listed for $3.5 million. And the addbacks were extensive. It was anything that could be rounded, things as arbitrary as, well, we're reducing the, the phone expense because they could change carriers and it would cost less. Could does not equal would. And by the time I got to the bottom of this sheet, my valuation was $1.5 million. And it wasn't done in one sitting. This was done over weeks because we had to keep peeling back layers of this onion of this financial disaster. And the last line on the recast said owner bonus. And I thought, okay, if it's excess comp, that's an allowable add back, no problem. But scrolling up the page through the expense categories, I couldn't find a $150,000 number to add back. So after an exhausting, mentally exhausting call with this broker, we got down to that line item. And I said, I understand what owner bonus is. I, I don't see it above the line. He told me that he could not believe that I was a business broker and did not understand this ad back. And it just helped me through it. it. It's defensible. And he said, that's the bonus they're planning to pay at the end of the year. So I said, why don't we do this? Let's make it a million dollar bonus they're planning to pay at the end of the year. And we can raise the price by $6 million. And after about two or three seconds of trying to figure out if I was being sarcastic or not, they agreed to sell at 1.5 million. The biggest laugh I get, and sometimes the biggest frustration I have in dealing with business owners are the really intelligent people. So it doesn't take them long to figure out what I call the ad back game, right? They sit there and they go, oh, my business is going to sell for three to five times my net income or adjusted income for, so every dollar I show this guy, the broker, it's going to be two to three in my pocket. So all of a sudden they start coming back with, yeah, I spend all this money on marketing, but you don't need it. I have too many employees. You, they can just get rid of some, all these things they no longer doing that people can run a tighter ship. And early in my career, I would almost get into arguments with them about why you can't do that. Later in my career, 25 years later, what I tell them is, I think that's great. They're like, you do? I'm like, yes. And before we take this business to market, I want you to reduce your marketing. I want you to fire employees. And I want you to do all these things you tell me that are not necessary in the business. And if you do that, I will take your business to market making these adjustments. No, I said that's for someone else, not for me. I'm comfortable the way my business is. I said, then you got to be comfortable with the price you're going to get for it because nobody's going to accept the fact that all these adjustments need to be made unless you're willing to make them yourself. We talk about the biggest misconceptions. Let's talk about this one, Jeff. And then Steve, I'm going to get you back in this conversation. But the one thing we talked about multiples a minute ago. So Jeff, you and I are going to role play a little bit here. And this can be dangerous on, on the podcast. We're going to role play. So you're going to be the business intermediary, not much of a stretch, right? I'll be the, the business owner you're talking to about taking the business to market. And you've just sat here and you've told me, and I'm catching on what all this ad back means. And I sit there and I tell you, and you're talking to me about, Crest, the healthier your bottom line, the, the more you're going to get in the business sale. And I say, yeah, but Jeff, you don't understand. 
and just for the sake of making things up, I'm in a 30% tax bracket. For every dollar that is not on my bottom line, I don't have to pay the 30% tax on that. Look at me. So why would you tell me that I need to put something on the bottom line so I could pay a higher tax? Are you crazy? The popular cliche on this, which I think perhaps you initially shared with me is, you can only steal it once. You can either take the cash and not pay the tax on it, which obviously is in violation of federal law, or you can deposit it and get a multiple towards your uh, seller discretionary cash flow. But you can't steal the cash and then get the multiple. It doesn't work that way. So I could save the 30 cents by not having it to the bottom line. But in the end of the day, if my business is selling for three or four or five multiple, what am I costing myself if you're not able to add it back to the bottom line? Right. Main street multiples that I'm seeing are between two and three times. So if we use the high end of that, you can either save 30 cents or you can get paid $3. And that is the point that I think for every business owner that's listening out there should understand. Penny wise and dollar foolish, right? <laughs> Look, you're so proud that you're saving that money on taxes, but you're really kicking yourself in the pants because you're costing yourself a whole lot of money. Now, Steve, let's talk about how someone uh, could cost themselves some money by not having things that the bank would accept as addbacks. Now, if a bank is able to do a loan for a business, statistics show us that those businesses sell for higher multiples a lot of times, higher premiums. It opens up the buying pool because buyers have to put less money down. So the drawback to a seller that's hiding everything and can't add everything back is that they have the, they're going to potentially lose the opportunity to sell the business through financing. Thus, they have to become the bank themselves, which means they're going to have to carry a big portion of that. Steve, when we're talking about that, what I'd like to, them to hear from you as a lender, why it's important to not get caught up in the game of trying to hide as much as I possibly can. Something Jeff touched on, which was key, was creating IRS fraud. Okay, first thing we have to note, every SBA lender in the nation has a legal obligation to turn them into IRS if they recognize straight fraud. Now, I'm going to take that one step further and tell you where that happens. Burying money in cost of goods sold. When we talk about expenses and we talk about the vehicles and we talk about even home offices and things, that's a gray area. A lender cannot make the determination you use those vehicles or that property for business purposes. But if you're running an absolute non-business expense through your cost of goods to reduce your overall net income, uh, that's blatant fraud. And I mention this because I've seen it many times. Uh, I've had sellers call me up and say, but I can prove it. And my answer is, if you do, we'll put you in jail. But he lost three times the multiple. It, it was, he was running 135,000 through his cost of goods. His mortgage, his personal mortgage. That's a hit on your purchase price. Jeff will attest to this. You just lost half a million dollars on your selling price. But that's what he was doing. He was thinking he was saving money. That's the biggest concern. Once we get past this, no uh, fraud. Now we'll look into it. Another one of the points that you made 
Whereas if they cut the advertising and if they cut this expense and if they cut that, let's just say that Mr. Seller, okay, we have these seven things you think you can cut and add to your cash flow for your new buyer. Now we're taking it from a lending perspective and saying, the seller is a horrible operator. If these were great moves, why haven't they been in place? Then I'm going to have to take the position where the seller doesn't have a clue and he just thinks this should happen. But what we're doing is we're portraying a picture that the seller is a bad operator. You also want to keep that in mind if you're going too far down that ad back list. I had one where they wanted to cut the health insurance for all the employees and save the company $45,000. That'd be great, except everyone's going to walk out the next day. Yeah, you become Mr. Popularity when you walk in day one and you cut everyone's benefits. So, Steve, let's use this scenario. Company's making $250,000 a year adjusted net profit that the bank accepts the ad backs. And let's just say that business sells for two multiple. So it's going to sell for half a million dollars. Typically, and I know there's going to be a range, but a buyer that's coming in and buying a business for the half a million dollars, what's the expectation on the best case scenario to worst case scenario in your point of view that they're going to have to come out of pocket to be able to go forward with this transaction? That's not a concern. There are three basic things we, we look at any buyer, and that's going to be where your buyer pool expands. Like you mentioned before, when you're talking about financing, Okay, especially on a half a million dollar transaction, there's no collateral requirement. There's no collateral requirement from the buyer side on any level of SBA loan. But the SBA minimum down payment right now on the books is 10%. But that 10% can be shared buyer and seller. There's a few different ways to come up with that. But still, for $50,000, he can get into a half a million dollar business. And that's the current criteria. But we're looking for three basic things. We want the, the down payment ability, however we structure it, maybe it includes some seller financing. We want the buyer to have good to great credit so that they are credit worthy. And the third is a resume that fits into the business. And believe it or not, that resume holds a lot more weight than a lot of other things. If they're in that industry, we can break a lot of rules. They know the business. If they're in that specific business, a lot more doors open. So Jeff, same scenario, but with a little bit of a different twist. Now you have the seller of a business. You make all these ad backs that they're insisting that you make, and you could bring it to $250,000 of adjusted net income, although it's not going to qualify for bank financing because the bank's just not going to be comfortable with any of this. You have a seller that says, I want all cash at closing. I want the multiple of the 250 to be the industry standard two multiple. So I want a half a million dollars. Talk to me about that transaction. That transaction has a statistically low chance of closing because there's two factors at play. One, you've taken out the lender, which means the buyer has to have, in your example, 100% cash. People that have a lot of cash are generally financially savvy, and they know that they can have a 10% down payment, and with current SBA guidelines, even less in certain circumstances, and leverage their money, which is going to yield an internal rate of return exponentially higher than if they wrote that half million dollar check. So we have no lender. We have all cash. We have only financially savvy buyers who could buy it. But why would I buy a $500,000 business for cash when I could buy a $5 million business with the same $500,000 down? So from a practical perspective, I'm probably not going to engage with that seller because their expectations are not aligned with the current market. 
as you said earlier, Jeff, you can't defend the value. You can't defend the adjustments, the addbacks. All boils down to do you want to sell your business? And when you start looking at businesses that qualify for SBA loans, for third-party financing, where someone could get in with 10% down, you have a greater chance of selling that business than you do of a seller with horrible books and records, not clean, addbacks that nobody's ever going to accept, and that wants industry multiples and also wants all cash. Am I saying anything wrong, Jeff? You're not saying it wrong. And I'm going to expand on what Jeff said. If I meet somebody with a half a million, we're not buying a half a million dollar business. The majority of the clients that we work with, especially if they're new, don't know what their borrowing power or capabilities are. And that's one of the first things we go through with them. But there are many times where they might even have some collateral or other things where we're going to say, this is probably not your smartest move buying this business. You need something three times the size or four times the size to utilize the program to the best of our ability. But in that scenario, we're going back and we're saying, yes, you brought me a buy with half a million dollars, but this is not going to be the business for them. And let's make it real. Let's talk what it really counts. What everyone cares about money. Lou Vessio wrote a course for the IBA and participated. And within the course, it talks about the statistics of sold data. And they have the resources to pull data on deals that had SBA or third-party lender financing when the deal closed. And those statistics showed that those businesses that qualified and sold utilizing a third-party finance or SBA loan sold for almost a point higher in a multiple than a business that did not qualify for those loans. So you want to get more money for your business right there. Uh, again, Steve, if I'm saying anything wrong, just jump in and say, Chris, you're crazy. No, I totally agree with you. That's your biggest buy pool, which is what you care about. You put a listing out there. You want it to go to the broadest market available. Uh, I have made that comparison for years and years. When I got in the industry 30 years ago, and many of you may know Ipin Darvis, he was seller financing, only seller financing. And I kept saying, Ed, you're narrowing your buyer pool to this limited group. You know, with a 10, 15, 20% down payment, the buyer pool is much bigger. And Jeff, let's keep it real from the business broker perspective. Just because an industry multiple is, let's say, a two, now all of a sudden you have a business with horrible books and records, although there's a bunch of adjustments and they feel like they could show it makes a certain dollar amount. From a buyer's point of view, when they see something like this, that multiple, the reason there's a range of multiples, let's say between two and three, what makes something a two and what makes it a three? So now all of a sudden, all these factors playing against you, doesn't it, or is it possible that it drives the multiple down in those cases, Jeff? Any adverse factor of the business is going to have an equally adverse impact on the multiple. I think in talking about multiple ranges and the subjective nature of it, there's a couple things that uh, brokers and, and business owners are going to want to know about multiples and how we got there. You know, why is it two to three times? Where did it come from? What? Why is it justified? And why do people actually transact business in, in those ranges typically? And the reason that we have ranges is because not all of our businesses are the same. We have one operator that might be in the lawn and garden care space that does a fantastic job. Their marketing is top-notch. Their building and facilities are, are fresh and clean. They're on a busy corner of the town they operate in. Whereas another very similar shop is behind a warehouse 
and they don't keep it up, they don't have product in stock, even though they're in the same industry, you can guess which one is going to be closer to three and which one is going to be closer to two. Now, if we take that example away and we look broadly at characteristics that impact multiple, businesses that are relocatable typically have higher multiples. Businesses that can be uh, run absentee or semi-absentee typically have higher multiples. Businesses that have recurring revenue have higher multiples. And and businesses that uh, can be operated with little uh, government regulation, uh, taxation, those type of macro level inputs are generally going to have higher multiples than different industries that don't have those similar attributes. So the last thing I want to say about multiples is it's not uncommon, and I'm sure, Chris, you see this too, that a customer that has inventory will say, okay, I'm good with your three times uh, multiple for asking price, but then we need to add the inventory. Like, well, no, because the principle that I'm explaining here is that the multiple base rule assumes that everything required to generate the, the profit, the seller discretionary cash flow that's being multiplied times the multiple is included. Now, there are exceptions, like a jewelry store would be an exception. Anything with excess inventory, if somebody buys five container loads of stuff because they got it on a good price, there are admittedly exceptions. But the rule is if it's needed to generate the profit, it's included in the multiple. That's a great point if I can jump in here because I see that all the time with assets. There again, hey, it's, yeah, $500,000, but I have 200 worth of assets. No, it's really those assets, computers, desks, things like that, that generated that cash, which gets you the multiple that Jeff's referring to. So adding it on top of it, what they're doing is actually putting themselves out of financing range and costing themselves money. Steve, talk to us a little bit about debt service coverage ratios and when adding assets or adding inventory makes the purchase price so high that it literally becomes unbankable. So the inner workings of DSC and what that looks like. That does come up. Where I see that mostly is those uh, older experienced sellers where they've had a relationship with uh, either the, the vendors or they have a big warehouse and they got a deal on this product or that product. I think it backs to what is an operating level that the business requires? Let's just say it's $200,000, okay? How much do we have? We have a million. <laughs> and I've seen this where they have 800,000 more than they need. How much do you sell in a year? We sell approximately 400,000 worth of cost of goods per year. You got two years worth of inventory sitting back there. So that is not gonna be able to be included in the purchase price because again, it's gonna put it outside of our, what you refer to as that service coverage ratio. I have to make sure not only am I covering the actual debt service, but I have to do it to a percentage of a coverage. So at a minimum, it's going to be 25% higher than what I actually have to incur. So if our actual debt service is 100000 I have to show a lender we have the ability to pay at least 125 in debt service. So we're going to look at that excess inventory, determine what the usable life and how soon we can get rid of it. We also look at it from a, we want to do the right thing from the seller. Because what we don't want, and let's say there's 800000 worth of excess inventory, we try not to allow the seller to leave with it. We don't want him going to the flea market selling a competing product with us. It's our product. I encourage my buyers to work it out with the seller, but it's going to be put on some type of a contingency basis. Maybe we can include another 100 or 200 and we'll back into that based off the cash flow. Because the buyer wants to do the right thing for the seller as well. 
So maybe instead of the 200 we, we need, we buy 304 because we can afford it. So that could be another avenue. But one way or another, we're, go we're going to have to address that inside the transaction. Now we're going to shift gears. And we're going to go into a brand new segment on IBBA Insights. I almost feel like there should be some music in the background. But we're going to go into story time. Because who doesn't like a good story? It's, I'm going to start with Jeff. And then Steve, when Jeff's done, I'd like to hear from you. But I'd love to hear you, a, a story you have that you could share with us that has to do with ad backs in a transaction. It could be good, bad, funny, whatever you want. I'd like to hear you, a, a story about ad backs. So Jeff, we're going we're gonna to start or begin story time with you. All right. Business brokers have hundreds of stories mentally sorting through the, the file cabinet. I remember a transaction that I worked with Diamond Financial and Steve on many years ago, probably 15 years ago. And we'll omit the names and even the industry to protect the guilty. But the business seller had accidentally not been paying about $300,000 a year in tax. And this was discovered in underwriting. So the seller was given the option of paying the tax or the loan being declined. Ultimately, he decided to pay the tax, but he was quite animated on a phone call with me, implying that it was my fault that he got caught. I thought I would never hear from that individual again, but the end of the story is a positive one. About three years later, he referred his brother who owned a business for me to sell. I guess at the end of the day, by doing the right thing, it was appreciated, but it took a number of years. You gave great, you did a great job, great advice. He realized he was in the wrong, you were in the right. And the proof is in the pudding, as they say. He referred not just a friend or a colleague, but family to you. Steve, let's hear a story from you. Gosh, if we're going with uh, crazy ad backs or, or fraudulent activity on the seller side, I have stories right as long as my arm. But one that comes to mind was it was a, a tax return franchise with three locations. Okay, you come in and get your taxes done, you get a check up front. Okay, three locations. We're working off the tax returns, working off the tax returns. We're weeks away from closing now, 10 days away from closing. And our 4506, which for everyone's reference, is the form we use to verify those tax returns. Every tax return submitted to an SBA lender must be verified with the IRS for accuracy. Every single one. We couldn't get the 4506, which is the form that the seller must sign to allow us to pull those transcripts. And we kept hounding him, where's our form? Where's our form? It got to 10, eight days before closing. And the seller calls me up and says, those are what the tax returns would have looked like if we'd, and I said, you're a tax reporting facility. <laughs> you're well, here's how it is the true story. So here's what happened. And the lender got wind of all this and knew, okay, those are not the correct tax returns. It came down to my buyer. I had to call my buyer and say, you have two choices here continue moving forward with your loan of which we will uncover this and put him in jail because the IRS will have to be notified or you have to withdraw your loan because you're our client. You're the only one with the power to stop this. So he said, let me get back to you. He called me an hour later and said, I'm going to withdraw my loan and I'll wind up with these locations. And I was like, yay you. But yeah, that was a true story where we had to withdraw that loan or their next call was the IRS. Oh, that's crazy. I've got one that you guys will appreciate. 
So it's story time. So the third story absolutely has nothing to do with a specific deal or a specific ad back, but you're going to, you're going to appreciate this anyway. And I'm going to leave the names of the people out of this because uh, I don't want to get in trouble. So I go to a local chapter of our state association meeting and we had a guest speaker and they were going to come and talk to us about ad backs and adjustments and how we can help all of our clients. The person doing the introduction was all proud. She's introducing the guest speaker and saying, if all of you guys are like me, it's business brokers running into problems on what can be accepted as an ad back and what could be not accepted only to find your deal die in due diligence. I've got a way to help you today. Our guest today is making the generous offer to go through these tax returns. They will go through the financials and they'll answer any questions you have pertaining to whether this would be acceptable or not. And it's going to help you sell more businesses. Without further ado, let me introduce you to so-and-so from the local IRS office. <laughs> Can you imagine what a room of business brokers had to say? Business brokers, we were joking before this call how business brokers like to talk and we're all great talkative people. You could hear a pin drop in that room. They sat there when the IRS agent was done with our little speech. You got a little spattering of applause. And guess what? Nobody went up, approached her. No one handed a business card to her. And nobody wanted to even know who she was. So I found that to be hysterical. Can you imagine telling a bunch of business brokers, send your deals to the IRS agent to help you close more deals? That has so, to top our story. It's a great story, Chris. So there, we just concluded the very first IBBA Insights story time. On that note, the only thing we can do is end. But before we end, I want to ask both of you, and Steve, since I asked you questions second most of the time, I'm going to go with you first. But I'd like to you to talk to the business owners out there that are listening to this episode, thinking about maybe selling their business in the future, or even business brokers that are taking businesses to market. Give me some really good advice for them. Share with us something that you feel will really be helpful to them when it comes to ad backs when they're looking at these businesses. It all goes back to what we originally said in the beginning. You can take the money now and save it on taxes or get a three multiple or more when you go and sell your business. Like I said before, there's an acceptable gray area. Yes, I get you're running through your country club dues through them. Like I initially spoke about, there are acceptable ad back. It goes back to the Wall Street saying, bears make money, bulls make money, pigs don't make no money. And that's really the philosophy most lenders operate under. If your wife's on the books, but she's not working there, we get that. If you're running the home office through there, we get that. If there are legitimate costs and advantages for the small business owner in America. So we want you to take advantage of that. What we want you to do is be a pig and it's going to cost you in the end. And that's what I think most small business owners don't recognize. It's not to your advantage, especially toward the end of your careers. And, and as you're getting ready to sell a business to shortchange the IRS, that's really the bottom line. And Jeff, I'm going to ask you a similar question, but you're talking to a business broker that's out there right now and they know they're trying to get this listing and they know they're up against other business brokers, yet they're afraid to really touch on questioning any ad backs because they just want the listing or the person out there listening right now is the business owner and they're interviewing other brokers and 
the other brokers are willing to take what they're saying for face value and are not questioning or trying to have them document everything. Talk to those people. What advice would you give them? They have a choice. There are definitely individuals in the marketplace that feel that they can compete and win more listings by telling people what they want to hear, uh, which is a high price. But at the end of the day, time is going to pass and they're very typically just going to wait for the seller to get frustrated and say, okay, what do I have to price it at now? And that's unfortunate because it rewards negative behavior. But I found that with an immense amount of education through the International Business Brokers Association, a long period of time and many transactions that at the end of the day, you can explain to that seller prospect that in many ways it is what it is. The value is the value because the valuation methodology that's going to be used by the buyers and the underwriters and the lenders are a pretty tight set of acceptable standards. So you, you can retain the individual who's telling you what you want to hear, but you're still not going to get it. When a business owner hires a business broker because they gave them the highest number, what they're entering into is pretty much an agreement to waste six to 12 months because the business is not priced appropriately. We've gotten incredible advice, some great stories and wonderful insight from Jeff Snell of Inline Advisors and Steve Mariani with Diamond Financial Services. I'd like to thank both of these individuals for not just coming on the show today, but continually supporting the show and coming on and talking about and sharing their insights with you. They don't have to do this, but they choose to. These are two of the most giving people I've ever met through the IBBA, always willing to give of their time, their energy, their resources. So Jeff, Steve, thank you guys for coming on once again. I appreciate having you on the show today and uh, hope to talk to you again in the very near future. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. You're very kind. Thank you for having me. No, it's my pleasure. And as always, guys. So if you're out there and you liked and enjoyed today's episode of IBBA Insights and you thought, wow, how can I hear more of these great episodes and hear some more of these great guests? It's simple. You go to IBBA.org slash insights. And you can subscribe to the podcast by clicking the Apple, Android, or email icons. Then you never have to miss another episode of IBBA Insights. So at this time, this concludes another episode of our podcast. I look forward to being with you once again on the next episode of IBBA Insights.